0: well amen it is a privilege to be here with you this evening it really is it's a privilege to be here with you um, on this weekend and these are uh, indeed strange days are they not Um, it is amazing Uh, we've lived in Zambia for the last five years and it has been amazing to, um, to to watch things from afar we left here, we, every, every couple of years, every two or three years we come back as a family. Uh, my wife Bridget and I have uh, nine children and seven of them are still at home with us. And uh, so the, the nine of us try to come back every two or three years and we were back um, a year ago. Uh, I had a preaching tour, I usually have a preaching tour in January so we came back in December, to hang out with family, and then had the preaching tour. and We left at the, uh, at the end of, of January, uh, beginning of February. And I usually come back three or four times a year to do a, a preaching tour like the one I'm on right now, two weeks, two and a half weeks. And uh, everything this past year has, has been canceled, and so this is my first time back um, in a year. And uh, so it's been very interesting to, to watch things develop um, both on this whole uh, COVID-19 front um, and seeing the way, you know, the whole world uh, has been uh, affected and how we've been shut down and how we, you know, put our masks on and everything and how people are losing their lives and you know, all of the implications of that and then simultaneously to see the way everything's been rocked by um, many of these issues that we'll be talking about over the course of of this weekend Um, these 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 issues of of justice and questions of justice and how we define justice and and what we do um, based on those those definitions so it's it's been fascinating for me um, and sometimes frustrating for me uh, to 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 watch that from afar Um, but i'm excited about the opportunity to come back and for us to deal with these issues over the course of this weekend Um, tonight um, my assignment is to deal with the question of the necessity of absolute truth why is it necessary for us to think in those terms why is it necessary for us to hold to absolute truth why is absolute truth necessary to Christianity um, and I, I, I want you to understand it from this perspective over the last few generations um, Christianity has been sort of herded into a pen if you will if I can fucking borrow off a, 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 a ranching metaphor there we, we've been we've been herded into a pen right um, now, I am I'm a Texan, but I'm the worst kind of Texan. I'm a Texan by choice. I'm a Californian by birth, but a Texan by the grace of God, right? <laughs> wasn't born in Texas. I just got there as quick as I could. All right. Um, and so you know you, you you gotta you gotta understand ranching metaphors if you're gonna be a Texan, right? And so we have we've been we've been we've been herded into this pen. And that this pen that we've been herded into is a a pen that says, Christianity at its core, when you boil it all down to who we really are, to what really makes us um, unique, to what really gives us value, is activism. Now think about this. If you watch a movie or a television show, and there is a positive portrayal of Christians and Christianity, what is it based on? Uh, well, it's probably something about soup kitchens, something about dealing with orphans, something about hosting AA meetings. Um, you know, something about it, it's it's ac- political activism on behalf of the poor. And the message that has been communicated, and the message that in many ways evangelicalism has embraced, is this message that our worth and our value in the culture and the society at large is tied up in social activism. But that's what's good about the church and what's good about Christianity. Now, What has happened is we've been herded into this pen and the way that we've been herded into this pen is that the culture at large has basically said to us, if you will stay in that pen, if you will stay in that lane, then we will praise you, we will laud you, we will accept you, we will love you. But the minute you start talking about theology, you're out of bounds. The minute you start challenging in areas of morality, you are out of bounds. Even when it comes to Jesus, the, the culture at large has said, listen, you can talk about Jesus. We're great. We're fine with you talking about Jesus. As long as you talk about Jesus the same way you would talk about Gandhi or Mother Teresa or any other person, Buddha. As long as Jesus is just a guy who said some provocative things, as long as Jesus is is just another guru, right? As long as Jesus is is just someone who lived a a moral life, by the way, defined by the same pen that we've been herded into, then you can talk about Jesus. But the minute Jesus becomes anything more, we got a problem. And what's worse, the minute you have a problem with Jesus being put on the same level with all other religious figures, and the minute you start to claim that Jesus has some unique place or some unique claim. Well, now you're out of bounds. Now. Enter the modern social justice movement. And I'll be referring to it over the course of this weekend as the critical social justice movement. And I'll explain on tomorrow why why I use that terminology, but um, I use the term critical social justice is not it's not my term um, but but I think it's a, a very helpful term uh, because it, it helps to remind us that the modern social justice movement um, is rooted and grounded in critical theory critical race theory so on and so forth um, and it is part of a long-standing um, ideological movement so enter the critical social justice movement and the language of, of justice and the language of advocacy, the language of equality, that fits very well in this pen into which we've been herded. Does it not? It fits very well. Until we start to listen and until we start to learn, and until we start to figure out, wait a minute, these ideas actually come from somewhere. These ideas are actually rooted in worldviews that are antithetical to and diametrically opposed to the gospel, and the worldview of Christianity. Now we need to have a discussion about whether or not the worldview in which these things are rooted are acceptable. Uh Uh-uh. Stay in your pen. Stay in your pen. And we'll accept you will even applaud you let your Jesus be wrapped and cloaked in our terminology and and you're great but if you get out and if you let him out then we have a problem well I stopped by to tell you you ain't hurting me in no pen. You're not hurting my Jesus into a pen. Because there is more to who we are than what we do. I'm not arguing that doing good is unimportant. It's absolutely important. But it is woefully insufficient because we don't do good for goodness sake. We do good for Christ's sake. We do good in Christ's name and we do good because of who Christ is and who Christ is in us. And so you have to have the whole package. And the truth about who Christ is matters. The absolute truth about who Christ is matters. But if you have your Bibles with you, open them to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's look there at this this penultimate. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I believe Paul here just really lays out for us in a very logical, systematic fashion um, why it is that, that truth matters and why it is that truth is necessary and why it is that this truth ought to be held to, clung to, and defended. There's several arguments that he makes here for the truth of the gospel and again there are those who would argue that you know you can have Jesus without um, the the theological necessities of the gospel he can just be good man and good teacher um, and so on and so forth um, and that has to be rejected outright and Paul does so here he makes an argument from authority And then he makes an argument from history or evidence. And then he makes an argument from logic. Makes these three arguments. And let's look at them in turn. First, the argument from authority. And by the way, these these arguments are are all to to be taken together but each of them is powerful in its own right. The first one is the argument from authority. First Corinthians 15 verses one and two. Now, in order to put this in, in context, we'll see here in, in this chapter and what we're going to look at that there are individuals uh, attached to, adjacent to the church in Corinth, who claim on the one hand to be followers of Christ, but claim on the other hand not to believe in resurrection. They, they don't believe that resurrections are possible. They don't believe that resurrection makes sense. They know that that they believe that Jesus is a good man, good teacher, good prophet, all of that. But but they draw the line at this at this supernatural side of things. Um you know, a famous example of this is, is Thomas Jefferson. You know the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson had a problem with some of the supernatural aspects of the gospel. Um, and there are others who have, you know, wanted to have Jesus and, and recognize that you can't get around Jesus, right? I mean, he split time in half, literally, between B.C. and A.D. So you, you, can't, get, you can't get around Jesus. Jesus. So these individuals recognize you can't get around Jesus. You can't get around the impact that he's had. But, but philosophically, they would say, I just have a, I just, I reject the idea that when people die, there's something after that. That they can be raised from the dead. So Paul's essentially taking on this argument. Paul's essentially saying, you you can't do that. That the truth, that these principles, that the essence of our message and of our gospel, the facts of it are essential. It's no good for you to have a Jesus without the absolute truth of the gospel. It's insufficient and here's three reasons why. First, the argument from authority. Verse one Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. Pa- Paul's arguing here, and by the way, he starts off the book of first corinthians by identifying himself as an apostle so paul has apostolic authority he's writing this letter as one with apostolic authority and he says here i would remind you of the gospel but not just of the gospel he's being very specific here of the gospel i preached to you as an apostle with the authority Of an apostle. So Paul here is saying it's not just any gospel that matters. It's not just the gospel that you like. It's not just the gospel that you're comfortable with. I am reminding you of the gospel that I preached to you. Secondly, which you received. The gospel I preached to you, the gospel which you received from me when I preached it to you, and the gospel in which you stand, all three of these things are important. Beyond important, they're essential. The gospel has to be preached to you, you have to receive the gospel, and you have to stand on the gospel thus preached and received. That is non-negotiable. And then something comes from that. There's a fruit of that. You know, you have a sender and a receiver and a message for effective communication to take place, right? And here, we have a sender, this this Paul, who's who's preaching this gospel. We have a receiver, right? These individuals at Corinth who received this gospel that he preached, and what is the message? The message is, and we'll see this soon here, the information that he preached to them about Jesus. This is what they're standing on, and in verse two, and by which you are being saved by which you are being saved i preached this gospel as an apostle you received this gospel from me as an apostle you you took your stand on this gospel And you are saved by this gospel and then there's this controversial clause if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain now there's a couple of things that Paul could be saying here Paul could be saying you know I preached the gospel you, you, you received the gospel, and you took your stand on the gospel, and you're being saved by the gospel. Um, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, but if you don't hold fast to the word that I preach to you, then you, you, you started out being saved, but now you're not being saved anymore. Well, the context here doesn't allow for that, nor does the rest of Pauline theology allow for that. Paul knows nothing of a salvation that is potential he knows nothing of a salvation that is partial nothing of a salvation that comes and goes but what he is saying is this you're being saved by this gospel if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you in other words you're only saved by the gospel if it's the gospel that i preached to you if it's not the gospel that i preached to you that gospel won't save you remember the context here the context here is people saying yes i believe this and i received this but but i just got a problem with this part all of the elements of the gospel i'm fine with and i'll take it but this thing about resurrection, I'll leave that. I'll be committed. I'll do everything I'm supposed to do. I'll be a good Christian. I'll be a faithful Christian. I'll come to church. I'll, 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 I'll do whatever. I'll serve. I'll do all of these things. But this little one issue here, this resurrection issue here, I've got a philosophical problem with it. And Paul says there's an issue because there is only salvation if you receive the gospel that I preached if you take your stand in the gospel that I preached but if you're taking your stand in nine out of the ten things that you heard from me and you're rejecting one of them then you believed in vain You believed in vain. You don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. So, this is the argument from authority. The way I like to illustrate it is like this Um, I am a graduate of the University of Miami. Did y'all not know that? I'm a Miami grad? How could you not know that I'm a Miami grad, right? Now, I, I couldn't find the University of Miami to save my life. Never been on the University of Miami campus. Never, never, not one time in my whole life have I been on the University of Miami campus. Now, I've seen a lot of you giving me the, you know, the the, the you, right? Like, wow, I can't believe that. Now you're sitting there, and what are you thinking? You're thinking, well, if you've never been there, you don't even know where it is. You just lied to us. You can't be a Miami grad if you didn't go. I'll give you one better. What if I had been, but I didn't finish? What if I went and I took 90% of the courses necessary for my degree and didn't take the last 10% of my courses and then left the University of Miami and stood up here and claimed that I was a Miami grad? I'd be a liar. And the University of Miami would have the authority to call me a liar because they're the ones who get to determine who's a grad and who's not are you smelling what I'm stepping in that's the argument from authority and if you have a problem with Paul making this argument then you believe that Christianity has less authority than the University of Miami Because you believe it's fine for the you to say, ah, sorry, you didn't complete what we required, but somehow you believe it's, it's mean and insensitive for Paul to say, no, all the gospel are none. But that's exactly what he says. There is a truth. It is absolute and it is necessary for you to hold to that truth now let me tell you what Paul's not saying Paul's not saying that in order to be a Christian you have to know everything there is to know if that's the case you won't even be a Christian in when you're in heaven because we'll spend all eternity all eternity unfolding the matchless endless measureless infinite glory and beauty and knowledge of God. Amen? Amen. So that's not what he's saying. If that was the case, why would we need to continue to sit under the Word of God? Why would we continue to study, to show ourselves approved unto God? Why? 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 That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you can only be a Christian when you have every piece of information that there is to have. What he's saying is, when the gospel is presented to you, you receive the gospel as it is presented. Now, he can say this because he's speaking with apostolic authority. I-, I can't say this unless what I'm preaching is what the apostles have said. Amen? I get to adding and taking away stuff that I'm guilty of the very thing that he's talking about. He's talking about the individual who hears the gospel as presented by the apostles and says, I have a a presuppositional commitment to an ideology that you just contradicted. And when the gospel that I hear from the apostles contradicts my presupposition, my presupposition wins, not the gospel. You're outside the camp. You're outside the camp. That's the argument from authority. Now he gets the the, the argument from history or from evidence. Beginning of verse three. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. Again, this goes back to his apostolic authority. Why is this important? Not why, because I'm Paul and because I'm smarter than you. No why must you receive the gospel from me now I wouldn't say this I can't say this but Paul says this and he has the authority to say this I don't have apostolic authority he does and he's explaining why he can make the argument from authority for I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. There's the argument from evidence. The argument from authority says, there is a truth that you must receive. There is a truth that you must believe. It is absolute, and every bit of it is necessary. Now the argument from evidence, says the reason that I can make the argument from authority is because it happened Christianity doesn't say as some religions do (laughs) that, that you need to search within yourself to find the truth God forbid The heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Amen? That's what what my Bible says. Forget that follow your heart stuff. It'll lead you to a ditch. Don't follow your heart. Luke, in Luke chapter 1. Then, if you go over to 1 John chapter 1, look at 1 John chapter 1, that first paragraph in 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. By by the way, who's the we? This is the apostolic we. Which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We've seen, we've heard we've touched we've handled this happened this happened Paul says first look at how he hands out the lays out the evidence I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures so his first piece of evidence is the scriptures and the fulfillment of the scriptures Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The Bible said it was going to happen, and it did. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. The Bible said it was going to happen, and it did. That he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter, after. Not not only does he fulfill the Scriptures, and being born, and dying, and resurrecting, but after he is resurrected, he is seen by multiple eyewitnesses. First, he's seen by Peter. And then he's seen by the 12, I'll just pause here for a moment, because it's always necessary to pause here, because if I don't, somebody comes up and asks me this question, right? They're like, well, actually, you know, there, there seems to be a contradic- contradiction there. And sometimes I'm asked this question by a sincere believer who just has a—I mean, they read that text, and they just immediately go, ah, what's the, that seems problematic. Sometimes, though, it's not a sincere believer it's a, it's a, a sincere skeptic you know them right they read the bible looking for contradictions or any, any 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 whiff of controversy and they look at this and immediately red flags go off and they go uh, wait a minute how does he appear to the 12 if judas had already committed suicide riddle me that bad man Well, what's interesting is when they come together in the upper room in acts chapter 1 do you remember what happens they replace Judas but they replace him with one and the criteria was he has to have been with us from the beginning who witnessed all the things that we've witnessed and they replace him with Matthias why do they need to replace Judas? Because they are the 12, and the number's kind of important. All the way through in the book of Revelation, the number's important. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, the number 12 is incredibly important. So Matthias comes to complete the number, and by the way, part of the criteria was Christ had to have appeared to him as well. So when Paul refers to the 12 here, he's referring to the 12 with Matthias, not the 12 with Judas. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. then he appeared to James to all the apostles that would have probably been over the the 120 being referenced there anyway here's what's interesting Paul makes this argument and he says Christ came he lived he died he was resurrected according to the scriptures so you have the evidence of the scriptures being fulfilled that's good but beyond that you have the evidence of eyewitnesses and if you do the math There are over 300 eyewitnesses to the resurrection still alive when Paul writes 1 Corinthians. They're still alive, which means that his claims are falsifiable. Now, that may sound bad, but it's a good thing. If you make a claim that's falsifiable, that means that there are people around who can say, You lied and I can prove it. Now, if I make a claim and there's nobody, who were your witnesses? Well, there weren't any witnesses. That's not a very strong claim. But if I make a claim and you go, Who are your witnesses? And we go, and I say, Well, there's over 600 witnesses. And, and and more than half of those people right now can be questioned. That means you can falsify my claim. You can prove that I'm lying. Which strengthens my argument rather than weakening it. And then I love the last part of this, verse 8. I love verse 8, and the reason I love verse 8 is because it comes at the end and not at the beginning. This is a huge problem we have in modern culture. In modern culture, verse 8 would not only have come at the beginning, but it would have been the only thing. Paul would have said, you need to believe this because it's my truth. Can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Ouch. If I hear one more person say, I just have to live my truth, I I still still don't even know, I don't even know what I'm going to (laughs) do. I just have to live my truth. No. No. Paul says, last of all, and that's not just last of all, but least of all. As to one untimely born, one born out of season, he appeared to me also. In other words, Paul doesn't make the argument, this thing is true and I know it because of my personal experience. No, no, no. Paul makes the argument, this thing is true and this thing is true and I know it first because of the scriptures. Secondly, I know it because of the historical evidence and the eyewitnesses. And thirdly, oh, by the way, me too if you need that for I'm the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God I am what I am and this grace toward me was not in vain on the contrary I worked harder than any of them though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me whether then it was I or they so we preached and so you believed by the way I and they all the way through this is what apostles first argument the argument from authority and specifically apostolic authority the second argument the argument from evidence and he comes back at the end of it with what apostolic authority Now he's going to make a third argument, and this is an argument from logic. And I love it. I just do. Beginning in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Remember, they have a philosophical disagreement here. You're saying that Jesus raised from the dead. I'm saying that kind of thing can't happen. I'm with you on all the rest of the stuff. But I just, that's a non-starter for me. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. By the way, here's the wonderful thing about all of this. Paul is getting ready to lay out a logical argument. why 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 this is problematic. But first he wins the argument before he makes it. in verse 13 he wins the argument look at it again but if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised Um, what did he do in verses 1 through 11 he proved that Christ has been raised now he's about to give seven things that logically have to be the case if there's no such thing as resurrection by the way already demonstrated that Christ has been raised now he's saying you believe there's no such thing as resurrection you got a huge problem because you got over 300 eyewitnesses and the Bible which says Christ was raised from the dead so you got your philosophical commitment And your philosophical commitment is staring at a fact. And that fact demands a response from you. And while you think about how you're going to respond, here's seven things that must follow if there's no such thing as resurrection. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, one, our preaching is vain. Our preaching is vain. If Christ has not been raised, preaching is the dumbest thing in the world. Because we preach Christ and him crucified. Now, unfortunately, there are some in this world whose preaching is unaffected by the resurrection. Because they preach self-help and not the gospel so so when I say preaching I'm talking about gospel preaching I'm talking about preaching Christ if there's no such thing if Christ has not been raised then preaching is useless it's vain it's futile it's empty literally it's empty the preaching is empty if Christ has not been raised because we preach Christ and we preached him crucified number two your faith is vain your faith is meaningless if Christ has not been raised why because the object of your faith is the resurrected Christ if the object of your faith is gone it doesn't matter how strong your faith is what if I'm you know I'm standing here and I'm just saying this not because it ever happened to me before Several years ago in a church where I was preaching. But let's say that I was standing here and I had stood up from a chair. And I'd give my message having stood up from the chair. And somebody behind me, uh, noticing that I was moving back and forth a lot, decided that in order to protect me, they would move the chair while I was preaching. And I finished preaching and believe with every fiber of my being that there's a chair right behind me when i go to sit down will it matter how much faith i have in the presence of the chair no because the object of my faith will no longer exist and your faith is only as significant as its object And if Christ has not been raised then the object of your faith is ruined so preaching is vain faith is vain number three we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised that even Christ has been raised I'd say that's three and four. Here's what's interesting. There are people who want to say on the one hand that, that they don't believe in the resurrection, but on the other hand, they don't want to call me a liar. Isn't that interesting? Don't believe in the resurrection. So you're saying I'm lying. Beyond that, I'm not just a liar. I'm a blaspheming liar because I'm saying that God did something that God didn't do. No, 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 no. I'm not not calling you a liar. I mean, because I'm sure that that's what you believe. doesn't matter. Remember, faith is vain if there's no resurrected Christ. If you believe there's no resurrection, you believe that everyone who preaches Christ and him crucified is a liar and a blaspheming liar. But ironically, nobody wants to take that step. But logically, you have to. It's irrefutable. Again, that fourth point, don't miss that fourth point right in the middle of his argument. Not even Christ has been raised, which, by the way, already proved. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sin. you're still in your sin Christ's atoning death the Bible says was acceptable to the father and the resurrection again if the death of Christ is payment for your sin the resurrection is your receipt the resurrection is christ being victorious over death and hell and the grave the resurrection is christ being the firstborn from among the dead and you're only the firstborn if others are born after you the resurrection is christ saying God saying in christ that the payment for your sin has been accepted All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. All of us have a debt to pay before God. And the wages of sin is death. Isaiah says, all we like sheep had gone astray. Each of us had turned to his own way. But God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Again, Paul tells us, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might be the righteousness of God. Listen, listen. If there's no resurrection, none of that is true. If there's no resurrection, Jesus is still dead. He has not been victorious over death, and you will not be victorious over death. You're still in your sins. You're unforgiven. And the only thing that you have hope for is the wrath of God to come. 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I was telling somebody that I've had to have three COVID tests in two weeks. Why? Because this whole traveling thing. Christmas morning, we got a call that my wife's mother died. And so she and I got things together and flew to Dallas. My mother-in-law made me promise to preach her funeral. Like several times. And so Bridget and I got on a plane and we went to Dallas to do our mom's funeral. And then we left there on the 4th and we got back to Lusaka on the 6th. Yeah, it takes that long. And then I had to turn around and fly back here, leaving on the 12th. It's a 36 hour trip. I was tired, y'all. Just, just tired. If Christ has not been raised, then we wasted our time. If Christ has not been raised, my wife will never see her mother again. Or her father I'll never see my father my grandfather and on and on and on and on any of those individuals because if Christ has not been raised then those who have fallen asleep and those who have died in Christ have perished there is no hope for them or for anyone finally verse 19 if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are the most pitiful lot on the planet. Now, some of you are looking down right now. You're looking, you're looking pretty, you know, you've got your masks on. But I can at least tell when you, you know, don't look like you've heard the greatest news in the world. That's pretty bad news but remember what i said he won the argument in verse 13 before he laid out the logical conclusion because in verse 13 he demonstrates that christ has been raised and that he's proved that christ has been raised because he points to this absolute truth that is the foundation upon which our faith rests that means we can actually flip the script you see if christ hasn't been raised then all these horrible things are true but he proved earlier that christ had been raised he reiterates that in verse 13 christ has been raised so my preaching is not in vain it is not it is not i preach christ and him crucified preach the gospel of Jesus Christ the power of God unto salvation our preaching is not vain it's powerful it's the most powerful thing in the world it's the most useful thing in the world it's the most beautiful thing in the world that's why that's why we can say beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news your faith is not vain your faith is not empty You place your faith in Christ. You place your faith in the God who raised Christ from the dead. Your faith is alive. Your faith is powerful because you place your faith in Christ. Thirdly, I'm not a liar. I'm not a blaspheming liar. I'm a truth teller. And i'm telling the most beautiful truth that the world has ever heard or will ever hear you are not in your sins if you have placed your faith in christ jesus if you have placed your faith in christ then he nailed your sins to the cross If you placed your faith in Christ, then God has cast your sins into the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west to bring them up no more. You are clean. You have been washed of your sins. You are sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters he lifted me, now safe am I. I'm clean. I'm spotless. Washed in his blood. Those who have fallen asleep have not perished. They've not been lost. Because a thing can't be lost when you know where it is. They've not perished. They've received their inheritance. They've not perished. They've gone to be with their Redeemer. And finally, don't you dare pity me. Because there is nothing pitiful about one who's placed his faith in Christ. One day you're going to hear the news that I'm dead, unless the Lord comes first. Amen? Last time I checked, the death rate was one per person. I mean, I didn't look today, but I don't think it's changed. Amen? Nobody gets out of here alive. me to live is Christ and to die is gain how can we pity those who die in Christ how see the truth matters the truth of the gospel matters and what the world wants us to believe is that we can just sort of go into this pen where we reduce Christianity to just doing good things For people where we reduce Christ to just this this guru and this teacher who, who gave some principles that can help you have a happy and fulfilling and successful life but the truth of the gospel is everything it is necessary an absolute truth not relative truth Not my truth, not your truth, not Paul's truth. And I love the fact that when Paul lays out this argument, he makes it absolutely clear that this is a truth that he believes. This is a truth that he embraces. But it is not merely his truth. It is absolute truth, and he believes it because it's absolute truth. And therefore, it's non-negotiable. So, whatever else we talk about, whatever else we do, whatever else we pursue, we must do so in light of the truth of the gospel. And we must do so. From the foundation of and from the assumptions of the truth of the gospel. So when we talk about justice, we can't take the absolute truth of the gospel and put it aside and then begin to think through what justice is as though the gospel doesn't matter. Because if it doesn't matter, nothing does. We begin there and we end there and every step in between because this is necessary let's pray oh our good and great God God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we bow before you tonight in humble adoration. Your majesty and your goodness and your grace and your truth. We bow before you with gratitude for the person and work of your son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The one whom you promised and foretold. The one whom you sent to redeem your people. The one who gladly gave his life for us. The one died and rose again on the third day the one who is seated at your right hand forever making intercession for us and the one who will come again at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead and to receive us to himself we thank you for Christ and we ask these things in His name and for His sake, and by the power of your Spirit, whom you have shed abroad into our hearts, who opens our eyes to these truths and grants us grace to understand. Them. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray.